It's official. The New South Wales Supreme Court has declared that a blanket ban on pets in strata buildings is harsh, unconscionable or oppressive. And so what does this mean for strata owners and tenants? What pets are allowed? Under what circumstances can they be banned? What are the limits of an executive corporation's reach? Does this mean there are some aspects of conduct that they can't control? When we have cases like this that completely turn the law around and say where we could have bans, we can no longer have bans, and it starts to raise questions then about, well, can we ban short-term letting? Can my building tell me that I can't have hard floors? Because there's a lot of buildings that do that. Is that harsh, unconscionable, or oppressive? Can we ban smoking? There's a lot of buildings who want to ban smoking. So it just a decision like this just opens up all of that uncertainty. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Four and a half years ago, Joe Cooper went to NCAT against her building because she wanted her 14-year-old dog to be able to live with her and her partner. And I wonder if she ever thought it would go as far as it did and she'd become a trailblazer for all those who want to live with their animals in a strata complex. So now there's a ruling, does it mean that every would-be pet owner can rush out and find a rover to bring home? Now we're joined today by our friend and fellow podcaster, strata lawyer, Amanda Farmer, to help us put all of this into perspective. Amanda has flagged with us that the Cooper case, as it's become known, has some broader impacts on a strata building's ability to make bylaws that regulate conduct. And there's a lot of opinions flying around at the moment, some more accurate than others, she says, plus lots of questions coming in from purchasers and wannabe pet owners, such as, does this mean that the building's ban on pets is now illegal? Amanda, thanks for joining us today. Before we tackle that question, can you fill us in on the details behind this ruling? Yes, I can. Thank you for having me on the show here today. It has been an interesting time in Strata the last month. This decision came down from the highest court in New South Wales, the Court of Appeal, and it came down on the 12th of October, so a little while ago um, from when we're recording this. And it has been in the media a lot. It had been in the media before it came down. Joe Cooper had last year been told by the lower levels of our tribunal here in New South Wales that her building's ban on the keeping of animals was illegal and that she could keep her dog, Angus, in her apartment her building had appealed that decision to the tribunal appeal panel. The appeal panel had overturned the decision, so said, no, you can have bans on the keeping of animals in apartment buildings, no problem with that. So um, poor Angus was then um, going to have to be shipped out, Joe thought. Uh, but as you say, Veronica, she took on this case as a, as a trailblazer, as an advocate for all of those 
pet lovers, animal owners in Strata, and she took it all the way to the Court of Appeal and challenged that tribunal decision. And the Court of Appeal has said that a bylaw that imposes a blanket ban on the keeping of animals in a strata building is invalid because it is harsh, unconscionable or oppressive. And we can't have bylaws that are harsh, unconscionable or oppressive in New South Wales. Which is good, of course. You don't want harsh, unconscionable or oppressive for anything really, do you? <laughs> That's right. What, what, I mean, the blanket ban, and I've read many bylaws on pets. Um, it's something I do, you know, just out of curiosity when I'm, no, not really out of curiosity, when I'm actually getting, uh, evaluating properties, I do look at the bylaws um, of each building. And, you know, you read very many of them. There's, there's some that allow for it um, under mm. certain circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. But the blanket bylaws basically saying no pets under, under any circumstances. Um, I also read one recently that I thought was blanket. I'm basically saying you can have a goldfish or a guide dog. Is Would that mm. be termed blanket? Yeah, and these are the kind of questions that are coming through. These pet bylaws come in all shapes and sizes, just as our pets do. And some bylaws say, yes, you can you can keep a fish, you can keep uh, one small dog. I see those. You can keep uh, one cat. You can keep a, um, a, a reptile in a terrarium <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> bizarre bylaws out there. Um, so they're, they're the questions I'm getting now. What about those bylaws? Well, first of all, we have never been able to ban assistance animals. So that's what uh, we used to call guide dogs. Our previous legislation said guide dogs. It now says assistance animals. Any bylaw that bans assistance animals has always been illegal. So they've always been safe. Uh, and that was one of the points that was made in the Cooper case. You know, there there is no way that a building can ever be legally 100% pet free. If somebody has an assistance animal, then they're allowed to have that animal living with them. Uh, bylaws that then have um, a limited ban, so banning certain types of animals or numbers of animals, well, what the Court of Appeal decision means, in my view, is that the buildings that want to impose those bylaws have to explain how it is that they're protecting or um, how it is that the bylaw protects other residents and their interest in their own property and the common property. So a big point that the Court of Appeal made is that a blanket ban um, doesn't do anything to improve uh, the use or the enjoyment by other residents of the rest of the property. The only thing a blanket ban does is makes the administrative process of deciding whether someone can have a pet or not easier on the committee. And that's not a good enough reason to have a blanket ban. So <laughs> <It's>, you, <laughs> I, I, I just laugh at that because let's face it, you know, you've been on a strata committee, an owner's corporation uh, on the committee, and I have too. And I think a lot yeah. of people on the committee would say, oh, anything that makes decisions easy will be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so many buildings are saying that to me saying, Amanda, we have this blanket ban. Uh, you're telling us now that it's probably a good idea to change that to an application process so that we're using our discretion and we're considering each application on its own merits. Is this a dangerous dog? Is there a reason why this particular owner 
and this part of the property shouldn't have this dog. Well, you know, you're asking us to employ some brain power here and to have meetings and mm. to have debates and to think about things. We've got other things. We're volunteers. We've got other things to do. Um, we're not trained in this. We don't know if we're making the right decision. So that's why we just took the easy option and had a blanket ban. Well, the Court of Appeal has said, no, not good enough. You need to think about whether what you're restricting is really going to have a material impact on other occupiers. And if it has no material impact and the court thought that the keeping of, of Angus had no material impact on anybody else, then that bylaw banning that activity is going to be harsh, unconscionable or oppressive and therefore illegal. So, and you can sort of, you know, it's good to have clarity, of course, because I know that certainly with the first, sorry, it was, it was the NCAT ruling, mm. which was that in the In favour, yep. Correct. And then the next ruling was against her. And so then it was like all these people that potentially were living with their pets yep. uh, illegally. And now, of course, um, it's ruled that those bylaws are, you know, unconscionable, unreasonable, et cetera. Mm. But that doesn't necessarily automatically mean that every pet is allowable, correct? That's right, yes. So this is a decision that only relates to Joe's building, the Horizon building, only relates to that particular bylaw and the way in which that particular bylaw was worded. This decision doesn't mean that all blanket bans are illegal or necessarily invalid. Only the tribunal or the court can decide whether a bylaw is invalid or not. Um, but what it does mean is this, if you're in a building that has a blanket ban and is in the same or very similar terms to the one that the horizon has, and you can see the wording of the bylaw in the decision, it's quite a common one, then if you have someone who is keeping a pet and you're on the committee and you say, well, this is in breach of our blanket ban, let's take this person to the tribunal, let's enforce our ban against them, the tribunal is going to say, that they are bound by the rules of precedent, they're bound by the decision of a higher court, which is the Court of Appeal, and they must make the same decision in respect of the same bylaw that the Court of Appeal has made. And they're going to declare that bylaw invalid for the same reasons that the Horizons bylaw is invalid. So that's why um, we've been telling buildings that if you have these blanket bans in place, then you really need to consult with a strata lawyer. You need to consider changing the terms of that bylaw. And what I personally recommend is that application process where somebody can keep an animal if they have the approval of the owner's corporation and the approval is given on certain conditions. And the conditions can be about noise and, and mess and dirt and damage and governing all of those outcomes of keeping the animal, but certainly not governing the fact of keeping the animal. That's where the ban, the blanket bans have gone wrong. <laughs> now, then you get into a bit of a murky waters, don't you? As you said, that A, the, stra the Owners Corporation, the Strata Committee have to start thinking. Mm -hmm. um, they have to start thinking about what the implications of having a pet um, in the property in the building are. Um, there's size, as you said, there's noise, there's mm. smells and other things that go with pets. Um, there's the amount of pets or the number of pets, the type of pet, the size of dog, the size of cat, the size, whatever. Um, so does that mean that there's a potential for more bylaws to be challenged because people will, you know, the, the, a building may come up with a bylaw that sort of has 
uh, requirements that un- under certain decibels or whatever, whatever requirements mm. are put. Does that sort of open up to, well, the requirements are onerous? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Where, does it, where does it end? Yeah, it could well open that up. Um, and this is, I, I think, the reason why a number of buildings have wanted to avoid enshrining this kind of a process in their bylaws, because if we start using words like the committee, when considering an application, must act reasonably, or the committee must not unreasonably refuse the approval, or we have to have reasonable conditions, then, of course, we come to the, the age-old um, difficulty at law that lawyers have, and courts have grappled with for years, uh, centuries, is what is reasonable. You know, how do we assess what's reasonable? What somebody says is reasonable in um, one context may not be reasonable in another. Uh, and I do believe that we will start to see that play out more in, before the tribunal in New South Wales in cases about um, whether conditions that are imposed are reasonable, whether consent has been reasonably given or unreasonably refused. Absolutely. Um, but the other thing to bear in mind is that if we look at a state like Queensland, um, well, they've resolved this issue a long time ago and they, they don't have pet bans. Um, they can't have bylaws that are unreasonable. Um, their threshold is lower than ours. We can't have bylaws that are harsh, unconscionable or oppressive. That's quite a high threshold. That's why it's taken a bit of time for our to get this decision from our court explaining what those terms mean. Um, Queensland has always had in their legislation no unreasonable bylaws and we have to act reasonably and um, they seem to be doing okay up there, particularly when it comes to pets. It, it is not at all the issue that it has been here. And uh, I think ultimately legislative reform here in New South Wales is where we'll end up amending our strata legislation to make clear what we can and can't do about animals. (laughs) I laugh because I guess what we are skirting around the edges of here is, you know, the old, the law is an ass, you know, this, Mm. this, that idea that You've got this system where you have a law passed, so a new legislation passed at the end of 2016, mm. and then you have to have human beings basically um, enter into conflict with each other in order to actually test that law to make sure there's no holes in that law so that then uh, there's clear uh, judgments or clear rules that, that people know mm. to abide to. Um, and so now we've had it, however, what, four years later, but even then yep. there's still more it's like it obviously it's a you know you got into a good le- a good area of business there <laughs> Amanda where there's going to be no shortage of advice required I would think yeah look um it, it's always busy and in many different respects and there is now at the time we're recording this there is some draft legislation before New South Wales Parliament um proposing to amend our 2015 Strata Schemes Management Act to include a provision that bylaws cannot purport to unreasonably restrict the keeping of animals. And that's something that has been uh, an amendment that's been put forward by the Animal Justice Party uh, off the back of Joe's case. And I know there's a a lot of people supporting that kind of amendment. Others are saying that it's um, too little, too soon. We need a wholesale review of the Strata Schemes Management Act, not just this small amendment about pets. Um, But even the Court of Appeal has said that much of the language in these sections of the legislation we're talking about is awkward um, for a court to make that criticism. They're really sending a message that <laughs> wow. we need to do some work here. There's a lot of time, a lot of money being spent by owners um, in conflict about these issues. And when that happens, it tells us there's something not right about the legislation. Well, yeah. Look, when did you start the podcast? The podcast started in 2016. Right, so and that's your strata property. For anyone who hasn't listened to it, 
I highly recommend you do, particularly if you um, own or live in Strata or considering owning in Strata. Um, and I actually will put the, the link in the show notes to your interview with Jo Cooper herself and her lawyer. Um, but I remember listening to your podcast in the early days. That's why I thought I just want to double check that it was back then because mm. What struck me is the amount of times you referred to interpretation, my interpretation mm. as yet untested, you know, I'm putting words in your mouth there. But and I, at the time listening to that thinking, oh, my God, what a nightmare. This is meant to clarify things and yet yes. clearly hasn't, um, which is, you know, from uh, this is a property podcast. We talk about the elephant in the room, things that people don't talk about. But one of the things about strata is that I just – my understanding is talking to a lot of people, there's a massive misunderstanding about how to live in strata mm. and what it means. And and it is really the fourth layer of the government, right? Yes. So, mm. <laughs> so, so therefore, understanding what you can and can't do is pretty critical to making sure that you actually enjoy your life in a strata building. Yeah. And a lot of people go in feeling like they do understand what they can and can't do and feel like they know they have to pay levies and they know they need permission before they renovate and they know that they can keep an animal or can't keep an animal and then suddenly there's these cases and then what does that mean for the bylaws and what I can and can't do? And this is the part that from a, a lawyer's perspective um, I'm fascinated by and I love this area of the law um, for that reason that it is ever-challenging, ever-changing. We're dealing with people's lives, different ways of living, different um, community expectations, cultural expectations, and we see that filter through in the law. But I understand completely how frustrating that is for owners, for residents. I'm a resident in Strata myself. Um, mm. So when we have cases like this that completely turn the law around and say where well, we could have bans, we can no longer have bans, and it starts to raise questions then about, well, can we ban short-term letting? Can my building tell me that I can't have hard floors? Because there's a lot of buildings that do that. Is that yeah. harsh, unconscionable or oppressive? Can we ban mm. smoking? There's a lot of buildings who want to ban smoking. So it yeah. just a decision like this just opens up all of that uncertainty. And yeah, it is an, an unusual, very unusual part of the property law world for sure. Well, it is. And, and this is some of the things that, you know, I'm glad you raised them there because these are some of the things I want to talk about that you have to have controls in place because you are all living together communally. Mm -hmm. You know, they might you might have your own space, but for instance, smoking is a good one. You smoke on your balcony because you don't want to pollute your own apartment and yet then you end up polluting the people mm. around you or impacting on the people around you. If you have a pet that barks when you're not there, you don't even know it barks. Mm. Um, your neighbours start going stir crazy. Um, you know, you, you talk about a lot of these uh, issues, you know, uh, my girlfriend's <laughs> been waging war with her. Um, she's on the Strata Committee and, you know, there's been the, the parking and the residents parking, visitors, car spaces, mm. all those typical things that people complain about and they probably think, oh, you know, dragon on the on the strata committee. But the reality is there are rules for a reason they are to facilitate a whole bunch of people living together in the same sort of area, right? Yeah. How do you for those that are, you know, that want to preserve um I guess the the high standards, you know, because let's face it, some people are really crappy with their garbage or some people are really mm. crappy with their animals. Some people are really disrespectful of other people. How can you preserve that? 
without being termed harsh, unconscionable, unreasonable. Yeah, I think you have to be constantly asking yourself the question, when we're talking about bylaws in particular, and we can go a bit broader, but bylaws in particular, what I say to my clients is, what job is this bylaw doing? Okay. It's really important as a committee, when we're thinking about drawing up bylaws or changing bylaws that we ask ourselves, what job is this bylaw doing? And does this bylaw have the job of improving life or for residents who are living here, all residents? Does it have the job of increasing or maintaining the value of our investment? So we're talking about uh, bylaws that regulate what we can and can't do with our property when it comes to renovations. Is it a bylaw that is improving or preserving the way of life or the value of your investment for all owners? And I think if you can answer um, yes to that, then your bylaw is going to be on pretty safe ground. If you're asking the question, what is what job is this bylaw doing? And you're saying, well, it's making the job of the committee easier because it means we don't have to exercise our discretion and make a decision. And it is it is catering to the lowest common denominator, then I think you are going to have a problem with your bylaw and that's where blanket bans have fallen down. Um, But speaking more generally, I have always said uh, the number one thing that I think dramatically improves apartment living is to have a very good strata committee. So these are the, the volunteers, the small group of owners, they usually are, who deal with the day-to-day management of your building. Um, I see a lot of great buildings. I see a lot of very dysfunctional communities. And in the dysfunctional communities making bad decisions, whether that's about bylaws or anything else, um, they have a committee that is internally in conflict. There are factions within the committee. Some people want one thing for the building, some want others. Uh, the dysfunctional communities don't take the advice of their strata manager or even their strata lawyer sometimes. Uh, And the ones that function really well, they are intelligent people with life experience, um, committed to improving the community or the value of their investment if they don't live there themselves. Um, And they're just the hard workers, you know, the, the champions for the cause, whatever that may be in a building from time to time. And those are the communities that are really thriving. And if you're looking to buy in to a good community, have a look at how the Strata Committee is functioning. It's so true. And and you and I have had conversations around this. Back in episode 25, you first joined us and we did talk about that. Um, And, you know, trying to find evidence of that is always a challenge because, of course, strata reports, which is what most people get before they buy into a strata building, there's no real um, standard uh, that applies to how those mm. things are put together or what they report on. And you've said many times, you know, go and talk to the, the neighbours, which yes. is pretty, it's a great idea. Um, and also read the email correspondence. And I have to say, even though I ask for it, you just mm. don't get it. Mm. You just don't get it. Um, it sort of slips in by accident if it ever gets into a report. But what's so interesting, I find, and you talk about the science of a dysfunctional uh, strata committee, mm. and I think they're really good things to pick up on. The factions, certainly, the um, you know not taking advice, but then there's buildings where there's complete and utter disinterest yes. in the building. Yeah, and I recently read a report, for instance, where you know they just got some the strata manager is pretty much left to run all the meetings. Um, she's pretty much, uh, you know, there is a committee, but they don't turn up most of the time. They don't do proxies. They don't, they, you know, they just, 
I just mm. leave her to run the place without much guidance. Yeah. I very much doubt they're paying her enough to do that properly because strata levy, the actual fees that these um, strata majors charge, they're not massive, are they? They are nowhere near high enough for the importance of that job, that's for sure. Yeah. Yep. So, and therefore the owners, the strata committee needs to actually do work because the strata manager literally isn't paid enough. Mm. Yeah. But it does beg the question, doesn't it, as to how do you really work out how a building is well run or not? Yeah. And look, there's all different types of buildings, you know, all, all, all shapes and sizes. We can talk about uh, a four-storey uh, red brick walk-up where we have maybe mostly investor owners and we're near the university and um, people come and go. There's not too much going on. There's no lift. There's no gym or swimming pool. We just have some um, outdoor parking area and that's about it. That may be your um, old-fashioned style of strata management you might have, uh, someone who's fairly hands-off. You might have an AGM each year because you need to strike levies according to the law and you need to approve the financial statement. But otherwise, there's not too much going on. And then you have um, your brand-new building that might be 200-plus lots. You might have a commercial mixed with a residential. You then have a building management committee. You have shared facilities between the commercial and residential. You have building defects. You still have an original builder and developer to negotiate with. You have um, maintenance contracts. You have a building manager, a caretaker. Um, You're dealing with a new set of bylaws put in place by the developer where certain people have been given rights over the common property and others haven't. These can be incredibly complex schemes and you need a strata manager who is experienced in managing those kinds of schemes. So I think understanding what you're buying into um, and why, you know, am I going to live there or is it an investment? Am I buying in the four-story red brick walk-up because I just want to put a student in there close to the uni and take my returns? Um, You might not be too concerned about what the community is like and the strata manager, but a building at the other end of the scale, I think you need to be very concerned and understand what's going on, who the players are and uh, why they should be the most experienced. That's it and it's so complicated and um, and uh, I would also argue the uh, the red three or four-storey walk-up, red brick walk-up, you do need to be worried about community there too because that's actually sort of good for resale. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but certainly there are a lot of investors sort of they want the hands off, they want the, the low strata levies and that, that come with that. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Recently, there's been a requirement for buildings to consolidate their bylaws, right? Yes. So when our new legislation started, as you said, Veronica, that was in 2016, there was a requirement uh, to conduct a review of your bylaws within 12 months of the legislation starting. And immediately, there was a requirement to keep a consolidated, up-to-date copy of the bylaws on the records. Which... Interestingly enough, I still come across buildings that haven't done that. Yes. Um, <laughs> you must be too. <laughs> and then some others where they've actually gone and got a, it's like they've bought a consolidated 
pack of bylaws off the, the shelf. Yeah, we we do have model bylaws in our legislation, which is often what developers will register strata plans with when they're constructed and they're they're selling off the plan. Um, And we got a new set of model bylaws when our new legislation started. And I saw that too, a number of buildings just adopting the new model bylaws, not really thinking about whether they're suited to their community or not, or whether they might have needed um, anything extra in addition to the model to deal with um, their specific situation. Um, you know, it's something that strata lawyers uh, do a lot of, bylaw reviews, drafting of bylaws. Um, some buildings don't want to spend the money on having that process done bespoke for them. So um, just grab the template in the, leg- in the legislation and hope for the best. Um, of course, Pennywise, pound, pound foolish. You then end up with the litigation down the track challenging the bylaws uh, and it can be a situation that could have been avoided if you had some specific advice earlier on. So if we come back to the, the Cooper case, I mean that was a horizon. So for any listener that doesn't sort of know what that building is, it's sort of somewhat famous because Harry Seidler uh, designed it and mm. and some people say that it should never have been approved because it's very, very tall mm. um, and exceedingly tall compared to the neighbouring buildings. <laughs> and this is in Darlinghurst and it has, you know, most of the floors would have incredible views. There's some pretty amazing harbour views. And I think a temp- penthouse recently sold for $16 million or something. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of people in that building probably have um, a lot of money behind them, right? So you're in a building that you would like to think has a potential to have a good healthy capital works fund forecast can afford to run the litigation mm. um but that wouldn't always be the case would it and and also you know i don't know joe's individual circumstances but you know i hope she was bankrolled by a whole hope you know a bunch of other people that wanted to get their pets approved too she didn't have to really pay for it all herself but mm. you know lit- litigation is expensive right so if you've got some some budget bylaws that are that open up the buildings um, or give opportunity, I guess, to be challenged. Yeah. Um, or if you're in a building, you live in a building where you've got a lot of very, you know, you're probably a lot of judges and lawyers and all the rest of <laughs> living in Horizons too for that matter. Yeah. Um, you know, are you a bit unmatched because of that? Yeah, it's a complaint that I hear a lot from owners who might want to challenge the position of their building, whether that's in relation to pets or maybe a renovation that they want to do that hasn't been approved. There's always avenues for challenging decisions that our buildings may or may not make uh, about what particular owners want to do. Um, But owners will say to me, Amanda, I can come to you and you can tell me, I can trot off to the tribunal and challenge the validity of the bylaw or say that the decision to reject my renovation was unreasonable and seek an order, but that's going to cost me upwards of about 20 grand to run that case from start to finish with a specialist strata lawyer. Um, That is a significant expense for me, a single owner. And the owner's corporation, the building, is going to engage their own lawyer. Um, If they are defending my proceedings, they may even be covered by insurance because buildings have legal defense insurance policies. So the insurer might even pay their lawyer for defending the application. And if they're paying it themselves, well, you know, that's their costs are spread across 20 plus 50 maybe owners. And it's just a few dollars out of everybody else's pocket uh, a month. It's, it's nothing to them and they will keep going 
and uh, I will be the one who's forced to settle or to withdraw. So you know what? It's not even worth it. I'm not even going to go there. So yeah, I definitely hear that about that mismatch of financial situations and a, and a perceived mismatch of, of power for sure. Which is something that when I started this conversation, I hadn't really thought of, but yeah. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> um, as often happens when we're having chats for the elephant in the room, we uncover bigger elephants. But also on the renovation side of things, let's have a quick talk about because it's on topic. I mean, you have to get bylaw registered um, whenever, or a special bylaw, right, um, whenever you want to get renovations approved on your lot. Yes, Depends on the extent of your renovation work, but major renovations affecting waterproofing, structural alterations or affecting the external appearance of the property will need a bylaw. Yeah. Um, and some I've read, you know, obviously they're going to change floor coverings. You mentioned that before. Mm. I mean, a lot of buildings will actually say no timber floor coverings, mm. um, even if they are battened. Um, you know, so you've got to look to noise transference. And and I think, too, we've got to be considerate when we live in strata anyway, regardless. Mm. Yeah. Um, so what, yeah, how did, what does somebody do if they bought in a property thinking, well, you know, it's run down, needs a new kitchen and bathroom for argument's sake and maybe I can knock that wall out and open it up. And these are all the things that I get clients and buyers saying to me all the time, oh, you could do this, you could move the bathroom there, you could do this, you can do that. And I think to myself, oh, it's not that easy in a strata building. You've got yeah. plumbing stacks, you've got, you've got, you know, services that you've got to consider and you've got, all, there's a lot more to to uh, take into account. What have you heard any situations, or what are the I guess pitfalls and things to be aware of mm. um, for somebody who is buying, thinking they're going to just get a renovation approved? Yeah, I think definitely if you haven't bought yet and you're looking for that property that you can um, do up once you're in there, I would be looking at properties where renovations have been done before in the same building. And you can pinpoint an apartment or two in the building where they've done exactly what you want to do. So if you want to um, con- combine the laundry in the main bathroom to make a, a large bathroom or t- change the laundry into an ensuite, for example, that kind of thing that's not just um, fixtures and fittings and brightening up the kitchen or the bathroom, then if somebody else in the building has done it, then that's a very good reason for the owner's corporation not to unreasonably um, refuse consent to your own renovation. So in New South Wales, that's the that's the test. Um, is the owner's corporation unreasonably refusing to approve your renovation? If they are, then the tribunal can order that your renovation goes ahead. And the interesting thing to note about that is, you know, we've, we started the conversation talking about pets and bylaws and not being harsh, unconscionable or oppressive. And I've said that's a much higher threshold than this concept of unreasonableness. So Mm. I actually think it's much easier to get a renovation approved because all you have to do is say that the owner's corporation is being unreasonable. That's much easier than getting a pet ban or or was until this case, a pet ban or another uh, bylaw that you might say is harsh getting that overturned. That's a harder job. Um, but definitely buying into a building where you can see the work has already been done is a, is a really good idea. That's what I would be looking for. Um, and thinking about, as you said, being considerate of your neighbours. Are you planning, uh, I had a client recently who's planning to completely reconfigure the layout of their apartment. So they want to put their living and kitchen area 
above their neighbors' bedrooms where, you know, the <laughs> building's been designed this way for a reason. And when I looked at their plans, I had to say, all right, okay, well, I'll, I'll help you drop the application. I'll drop the bylaw. But I just want to let you know it's a pretty good reason to refuse permission um, to because you're changing your layout and you're now going to be living day to day above somebody's bedroom. I said, if, if the owner's corporation rejects it for that reason, I think they're going to be on pretty good ground before the tribunal. Um, so it's a, it, it's a case-by-case basis like that. But, yeah, thinking about the impacts that you're going to have what other people in the building have done and been allowed to do and what protections you're giving the owner's corporation. So are you giving them a complete indemnity should anything untoward arise out of your renovation? That's why we have the bylaw and we have um, clauses in there that give the owner's corporation all the protections they could possibly want because um, they're doing us a favour, giving us permission, so we're going to make sure that we look after them too. It's it's funny you talk about that example of somebody wants to, you know, flip over the the layout and I immediately think, well, if there's somebody above them, that means <laughs> their living room is going to be above their new bedrooms. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but it is true. It's, it, you know, often we go around in our own little bubble thinking, oh, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do that. You know, I often hear people in looking at, um, you know, inspecting properties, mm. <laughs> they're planning things out. And I think to myself, oh, you, you're absolutely in your own little world here. You've not really thought about the implications on, on others or yeah. whether you're going to get it through. But, I guess when it comes to the renovation side of things, I mean, you talked about the bylaws, you know, those questions that that an owner's corporation needs to ask, you know, are these, I should have written them down, but, you know, what job is this bylaw doing, I think Mm. you said, and and how is it affecting, how is it improving everybody? Mm. Does an individual renovation improve everybody's lot? It doesn't. Uh, well, yes, there, there could be an argument there that we're um, improving the standard of the building and attracting particular <laughs> purchases to our community. Um, but it doesn't have to because that's a that's where um, that difference is between harsh, unconscionable or oppressive bylaws. You can't have those, um, but you can have a renovation works bylaw that is specific to a lot that gives you the special privilege to alter the common property. And the owners corporation can't act unreasonably in dealing with that bylaw. So they're they're dealt with in two very different parts of our Mm. legislation and dealt with in two very different ways. Um, And I find that quite fascinating because it's it's almost like there's two standards in our legislation. And I I, I don't see anybody yet grappling with that, but I think we may in the future. I can see. (laughs) It is quite fascinating. And I think too, just, you know, you just picking up on something you said in there about um, changing the common property because effectively, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but if you say you move things around in your bathroom, the plumbing is common property or what's behind the walls is common property, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that's where you are actually modifying common property. You're not necessarily out in the hallway changing, changing oh, the Oh, correct. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly yeah. Once you scratch the surface of mm. the tiles, uh, the, the paint, you are impacting the common property. So that's another big misunderstanding where people say, oh, no, it's, mm. I'm not doing it all within my own lot. And then I say, okay, well, are you lifting tiles? Oh, yeah, yeah, putting new tiles. Oh, so you're going to be 
um, re-waterproofing. Oh, yeah, of course we'll do the waterproofing. Okay, you're affecting common property because the minute we go below the surface of the tiles in the bathroom, we start dealing with waterproofing. Original waterproofing is common property and you need the permission Mm. of the owner's corporation to touch it. And that makes sense because if you don't do a good job, if your waterproofing is not right, if you don't waterproof at all, then that's going to have a huge impact on the rest of the building. You have water penetration down to the next level or to the adjacent apartment and it just keeps going and going. You know, it's it's something that um, needs to be regulated at the building-wide level. The same with structural alterations, the same with um, appearance alterations that affect the appearance. And that's why they have that um, requirement for a bylaw. And that's, yeah, and it, it is, we often talk about um, when you own strata, you own from the paint in. Mm. And it's a bit hard thing to get your head around because you think, oh, I own that ceiling. I oh, know you don't. Mm. And in fact, a lot of people with vermiculite ceilings, for instance, they get all excited about scraping the vermiculite off or putting <laughs> a false ceiling in and not realizing that, you know, that's not as straightforward as, as what they would yeah. hope for. Yeah. <laughs> Just, exactly. <laughs> it's a myriad. You know, the idea of, of people buying into strata and just assuming that they can do things that they subsequently find out they can't or not without actually signing over a lot of rights or maybe not a lot of rights but certainly um, committing to a lot of responsibility if it doesn't isn't mm. done well mm. is something that a lot of people don't understand, which sort of leads us well into the idea or our um, Dumbo of the week. So mm-hmm. do you have a Dumbo example for us? Oh, gosh. I have a couple. I'm do- I've been debating in my mind which to bring to you this week. Um, why don't I bring you both? Um, yes. And what, because please. one arises from um, a meeting that I had earlier in the week, and I think it's, um, it's an important one to talk about. Uh, but first of all, from the pet perspective, I think at the moment – uh, the Dumbo of the week has to be the building that is saying we have a, plank- a blanket pet ban, but we're still going to enforce it because we don't <laughs> care. We're a no pets building. We've always been a no pets building. That's what our owners want. Court of Appeal can say what they like, but we're going to enforce it and let the owner who wants a dog take us to the tribunal. Um, that, that's a dumb thing to do because what's going to happen when you get before the tribunal, as I said earlier, the tribunal is going to say, we have a court of appeal decision here. I'm bound uh, by precedent to follow that decision. And this blanket ban is going to be overruled. And you may have to pay the owner's legal costs of bringing a case that they never should have had to bring. Before you get onto the second Dumbo, that, that is interesting because the, the thing is that there's until there's a higher court ruling, right, there's discretion. Is that fair? The or interpretation? Is, the bylaw is there. The bylaw is in place. Uh, the bylaw doesn't have to be enforced. So if you say from, from the discretion um, angle, I would be saying there is no... There is no law that requires a building to enforce its bylaws and the committee should, being aware of this case, use its discretion and not enforce the bylaw against an owner who may bring a dog onto the common property or or onto their lot. Um, What the committee should do is get together and start talking about how they're going to amend their bylaw to reflect um, what the Court of Appeal has said. Uh, You're right that until we have legislative change, the, uh, our legislation doesn't say that you can't have blanket bans, but our legislation says you can't have harsh, unconscionable or oppressive bylaws. And the court says that blanket bans on pets are harsh, unconscionable or oppressive. So there's a, there's a few steps to think through there, but you end up in the same place, which is you'll eventually have the tribunal or court saying your bylaws invalid. 
So if you've got a lawyer telling you that, then there's no point um, going through the process. (laughs) It just makes me not laugh, but makes me wonder, um, what's the purpose in a way of lower courts if you just keep taking it right up to the top and, and until you get the answer that oh, either A, you want, or B, there's no other, you know, courses for um, appeal. Yeah. Well, we, ha- we have a hierarchy, of course, to try and keep business um, streamlined and not overwhelm. I would love to. I love that idea. I would love to go straight to the three, three judges on the Court of Appeal, as smartest people in the country in the legal system, um, to make a decision about my renovation or about my um, whatever my strata dispute is. That would be wonderful. Um, but unfortunately, that's not how it works. Uh, the system is such that the the evidence is put before a lower court that has um, uh, theoretically the facilities and the time to hear from witnesses, to look at what the facts are, to decide what the facts are, to read everything, to talk to witnesses, ask them questions. Um, That's what our tribunal is set up for and it's supposed to be more consumer friendly to allow that process to happen without lawyers if that's what um, the parties want. And then the higher levels of the court are more focused on the legal questions. So when we do appeal a decision, usually you can only appeal on a a question of law. So you can only appeal because you're saying the tribunal member who decided this case got the law wrong. It wasn't that they misunderstood part of the facts or that they didn't like a particular witness. They actually got the law wrong. And then our higher levels, um, our higher level courts decide what they say the law means, what they think it's supposed to mean, and make a decision about the law, not necessarily about the facts. (laughs) It's a minefield. (laughs) Now, what's your second Dumbo? Oh, my second Dumbo is quite separate from uh, animals and bylaws, but we did touch on it a little bit earlier, strata records inspections. I attended the office of a strata manager just last week, and I was doing a records inspection for a client. And uh, I always send a letter setting out that I'm coming, what I'd like to inspect, who I'm acting for, and a long list of things that should be produced for me to inspect. And this is drawn from the legislation in New South Wales, what it is that should be made available on a records inspection. And I get there nine times out of 10, um, what I've asked for is not there or only part (laughs) is there. And in this particular circumstance, um, the strata manager came over, sat with me. Hi, Amanda, how are you going? Good. Can I help you with anything, anything missing? I said, oh, yes, I don't have the emails. There are no emails here. And I'm here to inspect the records. Emails form part of the books and records. They should be here on the computer screen I was sat in front of for me to look at. And the strata manager said, oh, they're in my inbox. I said, oh, that's good. Well, I'm here to inspect the records. I'd like to see them. Oh, but there's thousands of them. I said, yeah, well, you've been managing the building for a few years. Yeah, I imagine there would be thousands. Oh, well, I can't provide all of them to you. I said, oh, why not? And the strata manager said, because some of them are marked confidential. I said, oh, why would they be marked confidential? Because the strata committee doesn't want me to put those emails on the record because it's got things about other owners and, you know, they don't want those things disclosed. Uh, And I had to explain to the strata manager that there is no such thing as privacy in owners corporation records there's no such thing as confidential communications there is such a thing as legal professional privilege so if you're communicating with a a lawyer that correspondence may be privileged but otherwise the communications between owners committee members with the strata manager unless it's a committee member saying 
mate, would you like to come to my barbecue on a Saturday afternoon? If it's about the building, it's a record of the owner's corporation and any owner or their authorised representative is entitled to inspect it. So nothing should be withheld. Uh, And my client was specifically looking for communications between the committee and the strata manager, uh, communicating about things that they had withheld that weren't put to meetings. Um, and it's very frustrating that, that that they have to engage a lawyer, pay legal fees to send me off to go and have a debate with a strata manager who, frankly, should know better. What a classic. <laughs> it's, it's just mortifying, isn't it? But it does, it reveals so many things. It reveals a level of entitlement, arrogance, yes. Yes. incompetence, um, you know, God, it's just woeful. And that whole, you know, you and I have had conversations before about some buildings that are run like cartels, Mm -hmm. you know, that the owners or the strata committee um, just seem to think it's their show, just quite phenomenal. But, um, God, look, I've read some strata reports recently and and there was actually one that was too done for the same building within a month and I read both of them. And you would think they were of two different buildings. Wow. And... The claim was that um, the initial company had sold their business, so sold their 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 role. Mm-hmm. I think, is yep. that what you call it? Yep. To another strata management company, and this and the buyer was really had absolutely no idea about records keeping or anything. But I would think to myself, given the way the first one was put together, it looked like I was pretty impressed mm. with the strata managers in the way that that first report was put together within the space of a couple of weeks, Mm. it's all over the shop. And I wonder if is it really the manager or is it the actual person doing the report? Mm. So sometimes it's hard hard to tell. Yeah, we see that a lot when buildings transition from one manager to the next that we get told, oh, well, the old manager didn't deliver up all the files. I don't have everything. Oh, I've been asking for that report and it hasn't been forthcoming. Um, There is a real problem with record-keeping uh, when it comes to uh, strata management offices, you wouldn't think that there there should be because there's some great electronic systems, you know, software companies mm. out there doing really well providing solutions. It should be easy enough to put everything in the cloud or on a USB or however you want to do it and get it across to another agent. But that really does seem to be where um, a, a lot of buildings have trouble keeping their records and making sure that they're accurate when they've had a change in manager. And on that, and on a final note regarding uh, bylaws, that uh, you can't always find a complete set of bylaws in the strata report, no. but you should be able to find it in the contract of sale. Is that correct? Definitely, yes. So the uh, conveyancer or the lawyer who's putting together the contract for sale has legislation, different to the strata legislation, that they must comply with and must include particular instruments in the contract for sale, and that includes all of the instruments that are registered on the common property title and the beauty of bylaws is that they are registered on the common property title. So should always be attached to a contract and can always be accessed. Um, as an owner, you can always access them by going to um, land registry services and paying. You do have to pay $20 or so for a copy of, of the registered bylaws and um, you can get them in one bundle if the building has complied with their legal obligation to yes. consolidate and lodge but otherwise they will all be there registered in one form or, or another. Um, they could all be in separate instruments on the title. You'll get them all there. 
<laughs> yes, you have to tra- trace them all down. That's it. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. I think this is really good um, to understand what uh, this legislation or what this law um, or this court case, I should, probably should say, has said clearly. And there's not immediate uh, claim on anybody who wants to own a pet strata just to made it immediately assume that they can have one. Mm. But um, also to have that broader conversation around bylaws and around the ability of a strata committee uh, and the owners' corporation to be able to control what goes on in that building. So uh, love your insights, love your time that you've spent with us. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Veronica. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... When Amanda and I were talking about the bylaws you need for renovating a property and the things that you should be looking at if you are looking to buy a property or a strata property, I should say, that you want to renovate... And she did say, well, look to see whether anybody else in the building has actually renovated and done what you want to do. Now, there's three ways you can go about this, three little hacks, I guess. The first one to look at is in the contract, as we mentioned, there is a complete set of bylaws in the contract of sale. So go through that contract and look for which apartments, which lots have had bylaws, and they're usually special um, bylaws that have been um, lodged and um, approved for renovation. Now, that's going to give you a clue as to who's actually potentially renovated. They may not have actually done the renovating. And obviously, if you are looking at buying a property as well and the lot directly above you, below you, or to either side of you or even opposite you, if they have a bylaw that is registered uh, for renovation, they haven't done it yet. That's something to pay attention to as well, because you're going to be putting up with maybe a bit of discomfort, sound, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, whilst they do that. But by the by, what you're looking for is to say, well, where's the precedent in the building for what you might want to do? So that's the first thing. You look at the bylaws and see who else has registered a bylaw um, for renovation. The second thing that you can do is actually get onto domain or realestate.com.au and go in the sold property section and see if you can find um, whether anything in that building is sold recently. Now, it's often you can you can look through the photos and the floor plans, you can get a sense of, okay, well, what are they like? Have they renovated? Have they done what you want to do? So that's sort of one way. That's probably the most laborious way. Quickest way is to actually ask the sales agent and say, look, can you provide me with a list of all the uh, apartments, so the last, maybe say the last five years that are sold in the building? Now, if, and they can do that because they've usually got access to RP data or CoreLogic, you know, what we want to call it, or Price Finder, they can tell you that. And once you've got those addresses, you can actually plug those into realestate.com.au or domain and actually see if you can find the old sales link. Once again, you'll get the photos, you'll get the floor plan, and that'll give you some information uh, as to whether anybody has actually renovated in that block previously and whether they've done what you're hoping to do. Please join us for our next episode. We've got a real treat for you. Uh, Economist Saul Eslake uh, joins us. We're going to talk about the future of the economy in Australia in a post-COVID world. Are we looking at economic recovery or a new reality? We talk at length about the RBA and banking policy and, you know, we didn't use the words the COVID cliff, but we certainly uh, were talking about 
the uh, long-term ramifications of all the fiscal stimulus and mortgage repayment holidays, etc., etc. And we discussed the US election and the impact on the Australian economy. Fabulous insights from a guest who has an intimate understanding of the banking system and the global economy. It's a must listen. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.